Donna Tran, and I'm excited to be here today to share with you um, some of my experiences and um, knowledge of BPI communities um, working with folks who are experiencing crises and whatnot. So today we'll really be going over considerations for crisis intervention. Um, there have been so many wonderful trainings from UCLAP and HP about the basics of Crisis Intervention 101. But for today, the focus of our training is really on the API cultural components and considerations. Um, you know, with a unique population and a series of traumas and histories, um, I think it's always important to, you know, take a look and re-examine how we do crisis intervention work with our API communities. And so with that, um, to just begin to share with all of you. Um, so first, who am I? Um, you know, I myself identify as Southeast Asian. Um, my parents were from Vietnam and were refugees. Um, they immigrated here and, you know, I think it's important for me as a mental health provider to realize when I was growing up, tough topics like mental health and trauma were never talked about. And if they ever were, it was talked about in such a hush-hush manner. So it was beyond me to even consider, you know, asking for help if I wasn't feeling well emotionally. Um, and it was never, you know, modeled at any point. Um, and so, you know, with that experience, it launched me into mental health work. Um, serving as a licensed clinical social worker at this time, um, you know, my expertise is the clinical therapeutic techniques as a social worker you know, we're never afraid to get our hands dirty and jump in um, to do the case manage work and to jump in anytime there's a crisis leading into the crisis intervention work. Um, my experience has been heavily with FSP, um, an intensive service level of care. Um, and our clients come to us usually because of a crisis. And during treatment, there are lots of crises which allows them to stay within our program. And I, I love that our program gets to do crisis intervention work 24 seven. Um, lastly, my experience has been heavily in service area eight as part of the API collaborative um, at Pacific Asian Counseling Services. Our expertise has been primarily with Cambodians in the Long Beach area. Um, and so, you know, we work with a series of other agencies um, across the county to serve you know, the special needs of Asian American clients. And I'll get to share a little bit more of those agencies in just a bit. Um, with that, as I begin, I, you know, I invite you all to ask questions, you know, share your knowledge, any new ideas. I know so many of you in this room are also experts in your own ways. I see a lot of names and I know you all have a lot of knowledge and experience of your own. And so, you know, I'd love for us to be able to share with one another you know, considerations for crisis intervention and different strategies and whatnot. So that, um, as we start, our agenda for today will really be starting off with some cultural and historical factors, just to give us some context of, you know, the help-seeking behaviors and patterns that we see and how difficult it could be uh, to get API communities to get support when there is a crisis. Um, I definitely want to touch upon some of the challenges with language and communication. And that's, you know, a no-brainer given just the amount of language differences within the community. Um, I'd like to then move on to some strategies and whatnot. And so at that point, I'll definitely invite all of you to share as well. And we'll end with some resources um, and local referrals that you can all use in your practice. 
So that will be our plan for today. Um, again, feel free to you know, post any questions in the chat. Um, and yes, the slides will be available later on today in the learning portal where you signed up for the uh, training. All right, and with that, I just wanna launch right into a vignette just to get us started and get in the framework and mindset of cultural components working with API clients. And so this is a client that, you know, I've worked with and several others at our agency I've worked with. So this may be familiar to some of you, um, but just to give you a, a framework, you know, mid fifties, Southeast Asian American woman, you know, who's immigrated here, has been through so much as a survivor of war, exposure to death, starvation, sexual assault, um, now living here in the United States with chronic illness, pain every day, difficulties with her ADLs. Um, she comes to you, she's been working with your agency for some time and she reports to you, my chest is hurting and a series of other medical complaints that you know, as mental health providers, we just wanna make sure we get her assessed and evaluated right away with medical services. But despite that, she doesn't wanna get services. Um, you know, her first language is in English and her English itself, you know, while somewhat communicative, is not the best so that those who may not understand aren't able to really hear what her complaints are. So if you're speaking with her through a translator, that in itself um, can make some of the information that she's sharing with you a little difficult to understand. Um, she has a whole lot of family around, but anytime we try to convince her, hmm, how about we reach out to your, your children? They're around and love to help you. She's like, I don't want to bother them. And as we continue to urge her to get help, she's like, no one would even care if I die. Well, what, no point. And so as we continue to talk and problem solve, we think, what else can we do for this client? You know, when we suggest medical care, she's like, I'll just continue drinking this ginger tea. I've got all this herbal medication that someone's given me, it'll be fine. Or, um, you know, I've got all these vitamins and antibiotics that I've got from previous treatments. I'll just take that and I'll be completely fine. Given that as mental health providers, I'd like to ask all of you, if you're presented with this client, what would you consider as some of the cultural factors that are impacting her resistance to get care, especially in the midst of what we may see as a crisis with her significant medical complaints at this time? Feel free to chime in on the chat. Um, it's a cultural belief of not wanting to be a burden on the family. And that is such a significant factor considering how much family may be involved in situations like this. Even if family does wanna be a support, if an individual thinks they're gonna be a burden, that makes it so difficult to get them the support and care that they might need. Any other components that you all see? Thank you, I see some more comments coming in. Fear of her medical condition. That is absolutely a great point to make. And then the fear and mistrust of Western medication. You could definitely see how she's relying on some of the traditional healing methods of 
some of the API communities, um, certain herbal medications, ginger tea, for example. Um, so kind of considering that mindset of how that might make it difficult for those to seek crisis support in a, a Americanized community where you know treatment may look very differently from how it was for those of them who were from um, their home countries. Thank you. It's definitely taboo to talk about negative emotions or problems, right? I mean, I think the fear, the pure fact that she even shared this with us was so significant. Um, but again, this was after a series of core building sessions um, and a lot of work to build trust for us to even be able to hear about these conditions. Um, definitely language barriers. Some other providers may not, like I mentioned, I not understand her complaints. Um, and so I think it's wonderful that we consider, as I said, asking her about traditional forms of healing. What has worked for her, right? What is she open to? Now, again, we may have our preconceived notions of what medical care she might need, but the value of asking. Um, I mentioned previous experience of services, uh, perceptions that services may not have helped in the past. And that's something that we see quite a bit, this lack of um, trust, um, the, the hopelessness of seeing that some of the systems that may have failed them before may not really step in when they really need it. Um, you mentioned, you know, clients who may not be aware and able to navigate different medical systems. Again, a huge barrier to support when they're in a crisis. Where do they go? Um, so with that, I thank everyone for bringing up these points. We'll be touching upon all these as we continue. Um, and I hope this gets everyone in the mindset of considering different elements of you know, how culture, people's histories and backgrounds can really impact um, their access to care, their help-seeking behaviors. What do they do in a crisis when they truly need help? So with that, um, when we think of a crisis, what is a crisis? And I think it's important to consider, it really depends on the individual how they respond to a particular event or circumstance. You know, as I mentioned earlier, for some folks, certain crises may not be a crisis to them where it might be for us, right? And so for it to be a very significant impacting event, very threatening, something that disrupts their psychological well-being. Um, for many API families, it may get to a very extreme level before they even consider reaching out for help. And so many of us may get clients who come to us when it's at a breaking point, right? Um, something to know is for crises in API communities, we may, may not ever know about it or be made aware until someone else brings it to our attention. Usually a family member, a neighbor, a caring person in the community who sees what's going on and makes that call. So considering that crises, like again, it depends on the individual and sometimes we get alerted a bit from someone else. But another thing to consider is with certain crises, we, again, we may see it as a crisis, but that may, may not seem that way to certain family members. I mean, I think about one time getting a call from a client's father 
um, just nonchalantly. Well, by the way, she was hospitalized last week for a few days, but I'm calling today because I wanted to ask for help with an application. I was just shocked. I mean, I would think that would be a huge crisis for some for some folks. Um, it may not register as something as that they need to alert um, and make aware to their providers because it may not seem like a crisis to them, something they may have already handled with or they've normalized or they've minimized. And so it's important to consider um, these factors. Thank you for noting that what might be a crisis to one person may not be for another person. Everyone reacts to and responds to situations differently. Um, so that's a really great point to make. In the context of this training though, um, I wanna kind of highlight some of the common crises we see in our mental health work. Um, suicide risk, definitely the, probably the most um, significant crisis that we get notified of and that we um, get alerted of to provide support with. Psychotic episodes, something we see so frequently in FSP. Um, clients with safety concerns, um, their behaviors, aggressive, delusional, paranoid. Um, we might get calls if there's abuse going on in the home or um, threats of violence. I think this one's a big one in the community that I've noticed quite a bit, that threat of violence can be minimized at times. Um, again, there's that discrepancy of us viewing it as an emergency, something that we need to respond to right away, whereas some of the family members may not consider it to be so. And I think about the time when one of our clients drew a knife out on their father. You know, father refused to call 911 and it took months before we were able to get the father to do so. And so considering um, how, again, crises can be minimized. We also think about the internalization of the blame for certain crises. We um, still think about a mom who was, you know, spit at and assaulted by her son. And again, she would just say, it was completely my fault. I made him upset. And when we hear that, you know, we want to support and jump in and reassure her it's not her fault. How can we help the client? But again, it's important to know that we need to consider how the family considers as, as a crisis or not. DCFS or APS involvement is a pretty big crisis as well for anybody, but it's such an unknown system to some of the API families that all they know is someone can take away their children. What does that mean? And so involvement in that, or having strangers coming into their homes, invading their privacy is a huge consideration as well. Um, police involvement is another one, and I'll touch upon this in just a bit, but given the current climate, I think police involvement is, is, a, is a tough topic for many communities um, and can definitely invoke a lot of fear and concern. Um, in the APA community as well, the threat of deportation. Um, surprisingly, we, we do work with a lot of undocumented, undocumented folks, and that, that fear of, you know, being removed or being detained or someone in their family having been detained can definitely disrupt the family system and be a huge crisis as well. And of course, financial financial stressors, losing a job, potentially losing their home, um, definitely crisis that 
crises that we need to consider. So I wanted to share this quote um, as it, I feel like it kind of encapsulates some of the cultural components in the API work, um, especially, you know, in terms of help seeking, um, you know, API communities in particular seek services only when they're in a serious emotional crisis. First, after exhausting their usual and then their atypical coping strategies, doing whatever it takes to try to handle it on their own. And then once they have sufficiently overridden those coping strategies, um, that sense of shame that may come from it, the sense of humiliation of, you know, disclosing to others outside of their family, um, the feelings of, you know, not of wanting to maintain their privacy. Um, once all those factors have been overridden, then we may see um, those reaching out finally to get some support or help um, from a crisis. And part of this quote mentions the loss of face. And I, I put the image next to it. For some folks, an experience like this could really make them lose their sense of who they are. Um, it's not just the crisis event itself, but it's the emotional distress from the loss of their own identity, um, their loss of control, sense of safety, security, and support. You know, so many of us identify as, you know, res um, resilient or able to handle things. And so having to finally ask for help is tough. Um, shared a comment about a term in Khmer, where as long as you're not drowning, you're okay. Explaining how many people will tolerate such high levels of pain and suffering until they begin to drown. And it's then at that point that they turn for help. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I think there are numerous terms in different languages um, in the API community that kind of demonstrate this, this concept. You know, um, the level of pain and suffering that finally leads up to crisis support. And that brings us to here. We've touched upon some of the cultural factors, um, but I'd like to share more about the historical factors as well. Um, but as a disclaimer of sorts, I definitely want to acknowledge the differences. The difficulties of an API training is how do I, how can anyone possibly cover all the different intersectionalities within the API communities. And so I want to share that, you know, given my experience, this is um, focused on several different communities, but there are a whole host of other characteristics and things to consider um, as we do our work. Um, and with that, I hope that all of you are able to share as well um, things that you've seen based on where your clients are. Every client and every family is different. Um, and while we can consider many common factors, as we will in this training, there are also things that are very unique to others. Um, with that, a cultural component I just shared, there's Asian values of harmony and saving face, not bothering others. Um, this is something we'll definitely talk about more in just a bit, but, you know, considering culturally, we API communities, they want to take care of things themselves before reaching out for professional help. So 
definitely a great point to make that we'll touch upon in just a bit. And as we continue on, some of the beginning with the differences in ethnicities, you can see such a huge range of uh, diversity even within the API community. You know, 19 different ethnic groups make up, you know, 97% of the Asian Americans. And, you know, considering just the wide range of everyone's backgrounds, you could kind of see there's quite a bit of diversity in it in itself. And so, you know, we'll, we'll do what we can to cover the things that may be common to many of these groups. But again, there are a lot of differences can be there. Um, even with language, you know, this, an Asian American myself, I don't think I was aware of some of these languages. And on top of that, recognizing everyone's dialects and accents can be different, even if you're speaking in the same language. Um, you know, my parents were from Southern Vietnam. And so uh, the dialect I heard was very, very different. So if we were communicating with someone who lived in Northern Vietnam, that was just way beyond me. And so even with the same language, the dialects can be different. And so understanding the diversity of languages and how that can impact the services that we can provide. And of course, SES, um, such an important factor uh, as we consider, you know, poverty and its impact on certain groups, um, how a single crisis in a, a family that's living in poverty or on the border of poverty can lead to a whole host of other events and crises um, making it difficult for them to navigate something like that if they don't have the financial resources to do so. Um, and so we can kind of see, again, the huge range of differences within the communities. There's, of course, a series of other differences, more than what's even on these lists, but considering, you know, the variety of those, their education backgrounds, right, their level of culturation, even their history, where they were born, when they immigrated, how they immigrated, their religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, such a huge variety of so things that we will definitely try to keep in mind um, as we consider how to best support these clients. And with that, I definitely wanna share this, this photo. Some of you may be familiar with it, um, it's the cultural iceberg um, on top, things that we see commonly as we consider culture, right? Language, dress, um, religion, and things of that sort. Um, but if you look underneath, there's a whole series of other factors that may not be as obvious. Things like communication styles, how people identify themselves, their concepts of their role in their families and their communities, how they make decisions, how they problem solve. So with that, cultural competence as providers is just being aware of these differences, learning and being knowledgeable about how to work with um, these differences. But it's important to consider cultural humility. Um, and that to me is the framework I'd like to set for our training today that it's completely normal to not know everything. Um, it's a lifelong process to learn about others' cultures, 
um, and to embrace the differences and, and learn for ourselves how to best work with the diversity, right? We don't know everything and that's completely okay. And it's the importance and the value of just learning day in and day out. Everyone's different. I mean, even if you may learn one particular strategy from this training, it may not be um, this, the same strategy you could use for another family who may identify very similarly, right? And so uh, with cultural humility, I, I wanna focus on that since it's giving yourself grace for any errors as well. Um, even myself, there are times where I make those boo-boos too. I may say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, but you know, so long as there's that commitment to learn, to do better, to apologize and repair with families. Um, that is where we, we wanna you know, ground our treatment in and our work in. Um, so with that, I do wanna share, um, we are talking about crises and trauma. Some of the content and material could be, um, could invoke a lot of strong feelings. Um, and so if needed, feel free to to stick, take a step back and um, just allow yourself to embrace feelings and the difficulty of this, um, but also please make sure to take care of yourself as well. Um, and as we go into the history, um, there's quite a significant trauma history. Um, there's a wonderful training um, as part of this API training series that reflects upon the history of Asian Americans and their immigration here. Um, but, you know, I wanted to share some of these photos and just, there were so many more that were um, more graphic than these, but I just wanted to kind of identify some of the historical events that have happened that really influence um, Asian American um, help seeking patterns and behaviors. You know, we see the Khmer Rouge and the mass genocide of folks um, the Vietnam War, where even young children, as you can see, are being exposed to violence. Um, the internment camps, even within America, having the Japanese internment, that sense of trauma of being removed from your home, um, of the immigration and refugee status. You could see the Bo people, you know, embarking on into the darkness of the unknown, leaving their homes, their loved ones behind. I mean, all of this really informs, you know, how individuals now are, are looking at mental health systems, are looking at crises, and are looking at how and if they will even ask for help. I mean, these are just a few examples of some of the historical elements in the API. Um, history that are so important to the crisis intervention work. You could see, as I mentioned, you know, war, genocide, persecution, exposure to death, you know, starvation and torture, sometimes even disasters. All of this can really influence how someone responds emotionally to distress. The um, refugee experience you know, has been that in itself is significant. Um, you could see how these can really prevent someone to seek help and to have a lot of fear of um, others and authority. Um, 
you see the impact of colonialism, racism, discrimination, uh, the pains of leaving their home countries, being separated from loved ones, um, just the grief and loss. So a whole host of things um, to consider. Um, these traumas that impact so much uh, historically, but even now to this day, it's still present in our community. You can see um, today, some of the statistics show um, how much this trauma impacts folks now. You know, some of the stats show 62% of Cambodians suffer from PTSD, 50% struggle with depression, 17 times more than a national average. The Hmong community twice as likely to experience mental health issues, depression, PTSD, anxiety disorders. Um, and so those traumas follow through and impact things today and even more so for the children of these survivors. Um, so we talk about intergenerational or inherited traumas. We see the history of traumas manifesting in PTSD, and now it's trauma that's being passed on to children and subsequent generations. You can see just in the youth sense of loss, leaving their home countries, not knowing what's going on with the relative. Is this person still alive? This sense of grief and loss is significant. It can become very easily transmitted um, with a sense of fear, anxiety, depression, um, lots of unspeakable traumas that um, youth now kind of wonder you know, why hasn't my father shared anything about his time during the war? Um, why is he so guarded about that? It's so tough, so private. And we see a lot of that repression, right? The patterns of avoidance and how mental health providers seeing how that can manifest in someone's well-being, sometimes leading into some substance use issues, some legal matters, but just this general sense of um, emotional distress, right? kind of festering um, over time. And with these patterns, you can see the challenges in communication just because of the intergenerational traumas. Right? Um, if parents aren't able to speak about what's going on or how they're doing emotionally, how can they model for their, for their children how to do so? So I reference for myself with my family and my parents we never had the language for it. Um, in my dialect of Chinese, if you ask me the word for sadness or depression, I can't even tell you because those, those skills to communicate and identify with those things were never really showed. We also see some current traumas as well. I think many of you are familiar with the anti-Asian hate incidences. Um, some may have even been victims of this. And this in itself is a crisis on a macro scale. Right? I'm sure some of you have gotten clients who have experienced some of the, the harassment or discrimination um, between it being a collective trauma. Um, you can kind of see the impact of, well, will clients seek help for it, right? And I think only now are we seeing this culture and advocacy for folks to speak up about it and to get support.
but I'm sure even before the, the rise in these hate incidents, there were many more things going on that have just never been reported. So seeing how the current events are really feeling and creating a lot of the traumas. And as we explore just additional challenges to help seeking, you know, there are some there were some recent news articles that have captured how difficult it is for families to seek help for their loved ones in a mental health crisis. I mean, you know, looking at these headlines, I mean, of course, there's a lot of mistrust with law enforcement and support. Uh, of course, there's a lot of anxiety of their loved ones even having mental health um, illnesses, um, behaviors, and whatnot, because it just isn't going to be safe. Um, that common belief is so pervasive, and it really impacts the ability for some of the families to trust the system enough to ask for help. Um, you know, the helpers sometimes may not be able to do so. And so if you think about some of the traumas that others have experienced, the sense of mistrust in authorities, right? You know, children are taught to avoid police. Um, it's subconscious sometimes, but um, they just worry about the environment. And um, for those who have been part of the war, it's pretty significant how it impacts just how they navigate different systems as such. Um, and I think this, this quote um, kind of really depicts a lot of that intergenerational trauma. And I wanna highlight that part of, if only I worked hard, things would get better. Um, that problem solving within, living in fear of something bad happening. You know, all things that really encapsulate barriers to seeking help. So again, this, this really recaps some of the points that were made. Um, you know, individuals kind of believing that they can endure hardships and overcome, overcome personal problems. I mean, folks have survived wars and a lot of very extreme, intense um, traumas. And so, you know, Many of the beliefs is that you just persevere, you push through it, you work hard, you just don't show those negative feelings, but you'll be fine. Um, and again, that references to some of the um, values that um, someone had shared earlier about harmony and saving face, not bothering others, right? And if you finally do seek help, misconception that it means that you're weak you're flawed, um, or you're disrespecting your family and tarnishing their image. Um, that is another huge um, impact and barrier to seeking help um, on top of the stigma that comes from some of the older generations, even younger children who have been more acculturated now, while we may think um, are more, or have the, the ability to navigate the systems, are also impacted by that stigma and that fear of letting down their family. As I think about this, I think about a family who um, unfortunately you know, lost one of their children to suicide. 
And the father never even knew about the loss of his daughter by suicide. Uh, that was how stigmatizing it was when the family kept that secret from the father, knowing how much that would disrupt the family. Uh, so, I mean, that example in itself just stands out to me so much um, of just the significant impact um, that the stigma and the beliefs of API communities have getting help. So we would want to um, evaluate why that is. And so that comes leads into the concept of saving face and how again it prevents that help seeking, right? Um, someone mentioned, you know, they look to their families first, right? To avoid that shame and embarrassment of others knowing that there's a problem in the home. Um, there's something embarrassing going on, um, things of that sort. Yeah. Leading to how difficult it can be to admit to having a crisis. Um, you know, letting it fester, having you know, these mental health systems worsened as you know, no one wants to speak about it. No one wants to, to point it out or ask for help. You know, increasing the risk of suicide or abusive behaviors. Um, concerns of danger and disruptive behaviors. These things are often minimized and it's only when it's to that extreme that um, and it's impacting the family that those will finally reach out for help. The sense of um, losing face and trying to save face, um, maybe generational as well. And you think of the older generations, you know, not wanting to have a bad bloodline for mental illness, right? But for the younger, younger generation, as I've mentioned, not wanting to seek help because of that, of not wanting to let down the older generation, but causing the family to lose their face. Um, so with that, I mean, it, this concept is so important that it really indicates why there's this sense of silence about mental health. And with that, how harmful that is when people don't talk about it, who we suffer quietly, right? Hurt deeply and allowing for abuse and suffering to grow without any support. So many factors, um, that kind of lead to these barriers um, with help seeking. With that, I know this was a lot of information in a short amount of time, but I do want to have the group kind of reflect. I know this could be difficult to hear and may remind you of some of your own traumas or the secondary trauma that you've experienced working with others in crisis. Um, so I want to share and have everyone share in about to reflect how have you seen these factors impacting your crisis intervention work? Um, what cultural components have made it difficult for you to work and support during a crisis? How have you seen these factors impact help seeking? And so I'd like to ask everyone to take a minute um, to ground themselves after this and just share in the chat um, 
what you've noticed and what's come up for you um, as we've gone over some of the historical and cultural barriers um, to help seeking. I shared how continuing to be part of that trauma by hospitalizing a client or encouraging a client to hospitalize themselves. Absolutely. Um, you know, I myself sometimes feel like I'm creating some of that trauma too, trying to get the client to, to get support in systems that they may not feel the safest in, but are kind of the only options that we may have um, to ensure their physical and emotional safety. Right? Um, so we'll definitely discuss that a bit more as well, how it can be difficult for us as providers um, knowing all these factors and having to be part of that work um, and following our protocols and our responsibilities as mental health providers um, when supporting during a crisis. Thank you for sharing that. I shared how clients will minimize their experiences or symptoms. So it's really difficult to gauge the extent of it, right? How how deep of a crisis is this? Um, the importance of not labeling a client situation in a way that they may not identify with, right? It could be a 911 situation for us, but for them, it might just be another day um, dealing with whatever it may be. First, notice the pattern of Asian mental health stigma in the community, just the importance of education. Um, open communication about emotions, that it's okay to get help. Absolutely validating that, right? And kind of um, helping promote that sense of it's okay to get help. We um, shared an example of a mother not wanting her teenage daughter to receive treatment, that she didn't want others in the community to know that she was receiving needed mental health treatment. Absolutely, we see this incredibly often. Um, parents not providing consent for their children to get support um, out of shame and embarrassment that others may know. And um, lastly, it's important to consider all these cultural factors at play to work efficiently and help us manage a crisis. Absolutely, right? We may not know everything about their history or what we've gone through, but just having that awareness, um, that openness to even um, consider or have that empathy to, to remember and to note these is so important in the work. Um, but I'd like to continue on to get to the actual the content is the actual interventions and strategies um, with crisis intervention work. Um, I first want to touch upon some of the challenges with language and some ideas on how we can um, really address these um, obstacles. Um, and so looking at communication and the flow of information, right? Um, you know, a lot of us have kind of hint, uh, indicated in the chat how hard it is to speak up. But on top of that, the barriers to help seeking, right? Common across many other underserved communities, right? Lack of knowledge of the systems, lack of trust in the helpers, you know, sometimes even the lack of insurance and financial resources to get help are all pretty significant. You know, transportation, childcare, 
most importantly, the lack of culturally competent providers, right? Um, this, these obstacles are a given for so many of these communities, but again, we think about um, the API communities and just with the fear of, um, for example, the, the public charge from a few years ago and our undocumented folks who are concerned to get help and their fears of how it could impact their green card or visa or pathway to citizenship. And so that piece of you know, lack of trust, fear, lack of knowledge and misinformation about this definitely impact crisis intervention work. Um, about one in two Asian Americans who suffer from mental illness will not get help due to a language barrier. Um, that's pretty significant, 50%. And we could definitely see why when we see the range of how many members um, in the community who have limited um, English language proficiency and to get translation service and, and whatnot, they have to become a threshold language, which is when there are enough individuals who speak a certain language for the systems to even translate and provide certain resources. So that's been an obstacle in uh, various counties um, and states where they may not have the translation service in certain languages where there's not enough people who speak it. But what about the people who do speak it, right? Um, and access to the verbal interpretation. Um, so there are so few qualified and certified translators in California even for Vietnamese and Cambodian languages. Um, less than about 50, I believe, for Vietnamese um, translators and about less than 15 for those who have been um, fully certified to provide medical mental health translation services, even written interpretation, right? How can you access information on the internet if interpretation on the internet is not something you can access, you can understand, or even just accessing the internet at all? So we see just the significance in the language differences, um, in the lack of translation, misinterpretation, um, I want to note that I personally have worked with many API adults who may not, may will always tell people they don't speak English, but I may not speak their language, but I'm able to, to communicate with them in English, um, given that my background has been working with a lot of API communities and in my own family, speaking in a way that meets and matches how they can best understand information. But even then, that's not perfect. And so the importance of having qualified translators. Um, we also kind of want to consider just the setting of where you're having these sessions. Are they coming into the office and are they being identified as a patient? Right? Someone's referenced that, you know, the, a mother doesn't want their daughter to be going into that, that mental health clinic where everyone will know what's going on. And for those of us who do, the, who do field work, are you going into their homes and are their neighbors seeing you coming in on a weekly basis? Questions will maybe asked. And so just noticing where the communication is being held and if it's um, you know, appropriate and um, mindful of your client's needs and concerns. 
um, if you're doing it by phone or telehealth, right? All the various factors and uh, obstacles that come with navigating a crisis when you're on a screen or all you can hear is what's going on without any vision of what's um, happening there. Um, I want to share an example of, you know, having to, you know, hospitalize one of my clients um, living in a small apartment building, no parking whatsoever. And as we're waiting for the ambulance, we're right on the big street. Cars are zooming by, you know, and the ambulance finally pulls up and is just blocking the street. And as they wheel her into the stretcher, all I can think of is all of her neighbors are able to see what's going on. Um, mothers in the home completely embarrassed, um, completely concerned. And once my client was transported away and I was able to talk to the mother, she shared that all of the extended family already knew that the client was taken to the hospital. They lived right across the street and they could see all that was going on. And so just a lot of these things may not be within our control, but just trying to be mindful of the settings in which we communicate and do our work um, and knowing how to communicate within um, these uh, tough situations. And so, you know, the importance of just having bilingual or bicultural providers when possible. Of course, that doesn't mean that you can't be effective if you're not from the same culture or if you don't speak the language, um, but just acknowledging, you know, the best practices if possible to have that um, option. Um, avoiding using family members or children Again, that's unavoidable, but the concerns of having information miscommunicated or within this, with like beyond the scope of what a family member or child can really accurately communicate. Um, I think about one of our clients whose, whose son, who was fearful of different systems, really didn't accurately translate the recommendations from the psychiatrist. And that, that really impacted the care and the, the next steps for the client because her the information that was shared with her was not accurate. Um, you know, wanting the importance of also not delving too deeply in getting um, sensitive information Right. Um, I, I know a lot of um, clients who mistrust the system. Uh, for example, those who've been to the Khmer Rouge, where personal identifying information was used against them. And so for some folks, you know, sharing with providers their social security number or their financial information is is another huge challenge. Right. And so finding ways to not start with that piece, right? Building that trust um, and potentially working with systems so that folks may not necessarily need to share that in order to get help. Um, so that's another key piece that we've seen multiple clients who've declined services because they weren't comfortable sharing that piece. That, that's an unfortunate situation and a situation that I hope that systems can really um, change in order to make sure that all folks who may not feel comfortable 
sharing this information or who may not even have this information can still get help. Um, and in a crisis situation, I know it's our instinct to just jump in, ask what's going on, get to the root of the problem and handle it, right? But respecting and honoring that this is tough and private information and it's very difficult for some families to share. So as best as possible, kind of allowing more time before approaching these very sensitive topics, right? Allowing some time to build rapport uh, before jumping into whatever it was, whatever is going on. So I could see a stark difference of responding to a crisis when I was made aware of my client um, expressing suicidal ideation at the school. Um, the school counselor had came and immediately, immediately went straight into your daughter wrote that she wanted to harm herself. Um, and with that, mother completely shut down and was not able to really communicate and effectively be present and allow the support um, for her daughter because that abrupt sense of being, of um, having this situation directed didn't match her style versus um, afterwards for us coming in and just allowing her to share what's going on, um, and, you know, building that sense of safety before even addressing the, the situation um, of the daughter having written something at school. So just allowing more time as best as possible. Um, so valuable, um, I think for all communities, but even more so with the API community, as we see, you know, the reluctance and the fear and the shame of, of sharing information. So with that, I definitely wanna highlight the work of cultural brokers, um, often known as health navigators or peer advocates. Um, the value of these folks in really helping bridge the gap between the family's cultural values and the work that we do as mental health providers to really build together and find ways to reduce that conflict and help the families really communicate their needs, um, to normalize it and validate their experience and to allow them to feel heard. Um, in many treatment teams with full FSP, for example, or integrated system models, these folks are invaluable to the treatment team and how they help break down and explain and work through these crises with the families in conjunction with the rest of the staff. Um, and so I definitely wanna highlight their work in that they may not have to be a professional with that title of a, a health navigator, for example. Um, these cultural brokers can be individuals in the community that we can lean upon whether it's a religious leader, you know, a school teacher, um, community member who's aware of the culture and who has that rapport with the family to really help them during a crisis. Sometimes, you know, the professional, um, that, that therapist or the, the, the psychiatrist can be intimidating, but someone who, um, has a different relationship and with a different understanding of the culture can make such a huge difference in reducing the fear and anxiety 
and attention um, when it comes to crisis. So absolutely, uh, we see these roles in many other communities, like the promotoras in the Latinx community, um, just the invaluable work they do um, during crises and even in preventing crises. So given all of that, um, I definitely want to highlight some of the strategies um, we use in order to efficiently serve individuals. But before we do that, I want to be mindful of the culture within um, Asian American families. I mean, this quote really resonated with me. And I was just surprised to find it in a scientific research article because it, it just it highlighted my observations and like, wow, the fact that someone was able to identify this, um, how Asian American patients are less likely to be found on street corners and under bridges and more likely to be taken care of by their families. Wow. Um, I want to let that sink in and that we can see just how significant the family support is for these individuals. Um, you could see, you know, many, many referrals that come and it's always connected with a family member or a support system. Um, and so this one resonated with me in that um, you could just see how important the role of family is. And so it really describes um, the, the context regarding um, family, Asian American families really wanting to keep um, their family together at home. Um, you know, so many of our clients, we may feel could be best served in other facilities, for example, but we wanna honor and respect the family's decisions to keep them at home and to care for them in a safe place. And so we definitely see a significant difference in API communities versus other, other cultures in having their loved ones stay at home with them. And that's with respect to the cult collectivist nature um, of Asian American families, um, kind of preserving family system, um, allowing you know, caregivers, if it's a parent, an older sibling, um, an auntie or a grandparent, you know, allowing them to fulfill their role to be the caretaker, right? And not allow you know, the outside institution to take that responsibility. Um, and so with this, as we jump into a crisis, um, you know, we wanna be cautious that we need to respect these wishes and um, you know, make sure that we don't put any you know, un unnecessary or potentially inaccurate labels. Um, so many of our families have, that I've worked with, moms, dedicate their lives to caring for their loved ones um, with severe mental illness. And, you know, we have our suggestions and our recommendations to place them in different levels of care. And in the midst of all of that, you know, we may be concerned if it's, you know, codependency and things of that sort. But being mindful that that concept may not really be applicable or accurate and that label is may be detrimental to the, the type of services and treatment that we provide. So being careful of labels as someone mentioned. Um, understanding that in the role of the family, 
you know, an elder or a parent may, may really call the shots in, in treatment. And so when you're providing crisis intervention, it may not be just with your client, but it's with the parent as well. Um, and so we see a lot of work um, in understanding that crises may not be the traditional model that you see, where you go out and you just work with the client, um, you get the consent, uh, but it's really just a, a more collectivist approach as well in honoring um, Asian American family systems. Um, as I said, sometimes the client is having the crisis, but it's almost as if the family is in crisis alongside the client. Absolutely. And it leads us into the discussion of who is the identified patient, right? We always think it's the, the person identified with the mental illness that we're going out to respond to because of their crisis, their behaviors, um, their safety issues, right? But if you think about it, our work can really focus on the whole family. Um, especially, you know, when you're the client is a child, naturally the parents and caregivers are involved. But even with adults, um, you know, living in the home, you can kind of see the a crisis will not just impact them, but will impact the rest of the family, especially those who are um, caring for them. Um, and so, and I, this reminds me of just. One of my clients, a very challenging one um, that I've worked with for quite a long time now. Um, mother was heavily involved in services and um, took care of all of his basic needs on a daily basis. Um, you know, there every day, provide him food, help clean up after him. Um, but the two were always in conflict. You know, mom wanting things a certain way, client wanting things a different way. Um, with conflicts over treatment, medication. And so, you know, towards the end of treatment, I remember my client kind of sharing with me, you know, Chana, you know, my, my first therapist was always on my side, you know, let me do whatever I wanted. And then my other therapist was always on my mom's side, so careful and safe and just, just always listened to her and took her side. But you, you were always in the middle, kind of always helping and listening to both of us. And that, that really struck me. Um, and I felt like that was the highest honor I could get coming from him. It really kind of acknowledged the work that, that we do, you know, serving both the client and the family member. And it, the family becomes your client. Um, and so kind of considering the implications of that, right? The work that we do, the importance of collateral work, um, family therapy work, um, you know, just with the crisis, again, it's not just with the individual, with the, with the family system in general. So with that, for crisis intervention work, I really wanna highlight the family practice model. Um, again, working with the individual may, may have not as much impact, especially if they're resistant, um, especially if um, their level of functioning does not allow them to um, appropriately and um, engage 
um, and safely and meaningfully engage in treatment and support. And so the value of having the family support comes in, right? We do so much to mobilize the family to help with crises because they're the likely the ones who will inform you what's going on, right? Um, they're the ones there 24 seven while you may only be there once a week. Um, our work really doing a lot to teach the family on how to handle and respond to crises. Um, that in itself is significant um, because you know the first step is to even get folks to even trust us enough to call us out for a crisis. But you know, as we work towards their uh, recovery goals, you know, having the family system in itself be able to come together and learn um, and utilize one another's support to, in order to um, address any crises or um, safety concerns with the client. Uh, that ongoing communication piece is key, um, allowing us to, to know what's going on, right? If, you know, I still think again about that example of a family, if they don't notify you, how could you possibly know um, what, what could be going on? Um, we think about how do we show them how to call 911, for example, if it's something beyond the work that we can do, right? How do we model how to express and call for help um, in a way that's gonna be productive, right? guiding them through a missing persons report, if that's the crisis, for example. Um, I think, you know, it's challenging balancing their fears and resistance um, in doing so versus really having to empower and enable them to, to take these steps, you know, first with our support, our guidance, our walkthrough, and eventually independently. Um, and of course, just reducing the family's stress and stressors in order to be more efficient and effective with the individual. I mean, this highlighting the caregiver fatigue. Um, how can the caregiver really support during a crisis if it's a crisis for them as well, for example, or if they've been exhausted dealing with all these crises, if the family member is not able to support who else can, do we have? And so this family practice model highlights just the importance of incorporating the family significantly in treatment. Sometimes it feels like the client's having the crisis, but it's the whole family that, that's, that's really suffering and needs that support. Um, sometimes it, the lines can get kind of blurry if um, the crisis is for the client or for the family member. Um, that's, you know, something to note um, as we see just the focus on keeping things within the family. So with this, we see how, you know, um, again, like the, the quote earlier said, we, we see a lot of the less Amer Asian American folks, you know, homeless or in the streets are less likely to be hospitalized, incarcerated because family members do so much to try to prevent a situation situation from escalating to that point, or um, you know, being hands on to 
to really protect and keep their families in their homes. With that, um, as we do our clinical assessment during a crisis, I mean, the importance of, again, the culture and what is perceived as a crisis, right? And our interpretation of the crisis. Um, how do people respond and react to traumatic, re re um, um, traumatic events and things of that sort? So as providers coming out and assessing the situation, um, you know, nonverbals are significant to see you kind of um, go out and respond. I think important to note that the nonverbals can mean something very different and considering the importance of um, how things are presented in EPI communities. Sometimes if you're going out and someone's smiling and laughing and giggling, I mean, is it because they're, they're happy? Or is it just the anxiety and nervousness coming out in terms of laughter and how common that could be um, in some EPI families? Um, even the lack of eye contact, that could be, is it avoidance? Is it, um, you know, withdrawal or depression? Or is it, you know, them showing you a sign of respect, right? Avoiding that direct eye contact, um, which could be, seen as you know, disrespectful in some API cultures. Right. So fully evaluating you know, that sense of personal space, and, um, body language, things of that sort. Even with, you know, even in discussion, how they speak um, verbally, is it, is it really fast paced? you know, hard to understand, um, is it a language issue? Um, is it, you know, challenges identifying the right words to use, especially if they're in crisis and English may not be their first language? Um, you know, these things are important to keep in mind given the backgrounds and the diversity of language and education. Uh, you know, for some EPI communities, saying no could be difficult, um, you know, and so yes or no questions may not be the best way to go about addressing some crises instead of asking, you know, do you want to go to the hospital? I mean, it's going to be, well, you're not going to get a very good answer for that, but if you're given the choice, right? Um, would you like to go to the urgent care to get assessed or to the hospital? Or do you wanna stay home and come up with a plan so that you can stay safely at home, right? So providing those options is so key um, to, for everyone, but really for EPI communities um, to empower them and give them that sense of choice. Okay, um, I think I have noticed in you know a lot of EPI cultures or some EPI cultures that there's an incongruency in the client's affect and what the client's presenting with, right? So clients can be talking about a traumatic experience with a smile, definitely, right? and that could really you know impact how we perceive the crisis. Um, 
often. So just kind of always being alert and mindful and open-minded to just the differences and what's being communicated and what may be truly intended to be um, expressed. Okay. So, you know, as, as we continue assessing, I also want us to avoid like over pathologizing sometimes, um, you know, with respect to the culture, right? If, you know, there is a recent loss in the family and they're talking and folks are talking about seeing the spirits or hearing the voices of their loved ones um, comforting them. I mean, is that a psychotic experience? Possibly. Is it, you know, a cultural or spiritual coping tool or um, practice? Maybe. And so just really taking the time to fully assess and avoid labeling things quickly as um, something more than it might be, right? Um, I also know that again, with the language piece, um, I think about my client who, um, his English was not the best and, you know, was undergoing a crisis with police response, unfortunately. Um, you know, in the report, so that she was agitated, incoherent, um, speaking nonsensically in English, right? And um, because of that, she ended up being arrested. But, you know, upon further evaluation and assessment, you know, the client was in such emotional distress that she wasn't able to, you know, fully ex express herself accurately in English. And, you know, the lapse of her using her um, native language in that made her seem um, much worse than she really was. And so being careful that, you know, someone, being careful to really know a person's language capacity, that not mistaking that for um, something more than it can be. Um, we also want to be mindful of under pathologizing as well. Um, and so, you know, if an individual maybe kind of quiet or reserved, I mean, do we assume that that's just how they are? Or do we really kind of explore more to see if there's depression underlying that, for example? There's another um, example of uh, individuals whose uh, native languages are not, is not English, but when they um, arrive at for assessment, they may be able to speak with you relatively clearly in English. Um, and we may dismiss that, that completely, that they're completely fine. Um, but with psychosis, for example, um, that focus they use to speak in English can really minimize their psychosis versus if they were speaking with you in their native language, um, it could be very different. Uh, so just being mindful of that as well. Um, that was a, a new fact for me, realizing that the, the brain um, and how it transcribes language, um, that extra focus may make it see, may, may, may make this person seem more coherent and put together versus if they were just speaking freely in their native language. Um, certain things may be revealed or disclosed that may indicate otherwise um, about their mental health functioning. Okay. 
So with the de-escalation component of crisis intervention, um, common crisis intervention tools, of course, safety first um, and never underestimating um, uh, or the, you know, the importance of making sure everyone is, is, is safe. Um, I know sometimes there's a perception that Asian Americans are maybe less violent or aggressive. And so um, while that may be the case for some, it's still important to make sure that we are mindful and, and focus on safety. Um, I think the value of really tag teaming and you know having a partner when you're going out to um, assess for crisis is so important as well. Um, you know, especially if there's language or age differences. Because um, if you're dealing with a family system, one person may be working and talking with the client while the other may be dealing with the family. And so, you know, the backgrounds of the individuals who are going out there to assess can make a huge difference. Um, you know, I've had a lot of success being the one speaking with the um, uh, with child clients, for example, while um, my, we've had other staff go out who may be older, for example, or have different lived experiences being much more successful with the family members. Um, as Maria said, good cop, bad cop as well, right? The, the tag teaming work that you could do um, and the sense of safety as well, putting that back up. Um, Again, offering choices, as I mentioned earlier, and avoiding blame. Um, that's a big one. Um, so many times we've gone out there and the focus isn't on what actually happened or the incident and how to help resolve it, but who's to blame or who's guilty about it um, or who's guilty um, in, in leading and causing this incident. And so, you know, having to really work with the family to, you know, stay focused and present in addressing and supporting the client versus going into what led up to this or who didn't do what. Um, that sense of uh, making sure that we really address the crisis at hand and allowing for the processing of feelings and whatnot to come afterwards. Um, so. But definitely keeping that in mind um, and allowing individuals to express themselves safely, right? Um, you know, the client may or may not share things if there is family around as well. So how do we make sure that both individuals can express things safely? Um, you know, family may be fearful to disclose certain things to you if they know the client is listening, because they may you know, there may be some retaliation afterwards. Um, and so definitely yeah, allowing for safe places um, and some separation so that both parties can really safely share what's going on in the crisis and to give you a better picture of what's going on. So going into a crisis situation where there's so much going on and really, you know, utilizing these, you know, crisis intervention tools to sort things out, allow for, you know, a clearer picture to come about um, and to really, you know, address the current issue without getting lost in the emotions, 
the history, the trauma responses, um, and whatnot. So I found this image and it definitely <laughs> stood out to me because I thought about how many times have I had to de-escalate both the client and the family um, during a crisis assessment. Um, then again, it references just the importance of, you know, working with the family system, but also finding ways to remove one, them from one another, especially if one another is triggering each other too. Um, we, we see the value of, of that. Um, so that thing, you know, there's maybe a conflict between both parties. And so separating um, the two will allow us to, to get a better picture of what's going on. Um, and again, the importance of going out in pairs, right? So that we both, you know, parties are being addressed and supported with. So one person isn't, isn't just, you know, waiting there or, um, no, not being supported at that time. Um, with, with that, uh, you know, this also helps with ensuring safety if there's, you know, any aggression towards one another. Um, so we think of how do we do this in a safe place, right? In, in what context are we in the home? Can we do something outside? Uh, can we um, be on the phone, two different phones, right? One person um, talking with a family me member and the other possibly maybe even being out there in person, right? So being creative with how we go about and addressing the needs of everyone involved in the system, okay? Um, and with that comes the safety planning piece of crisis intervention work, one of the most important parts, right, to ensure safety. And with this, um, I'm gonna realize that there's a lack of language resources um, with safety planning. Um, so, you know, providers have had to find creative ways to develop and, you know, write out a, a safety plan um, for individuals. Um, you know, there's many of the standard forms that have the coping skills and numbers to call may not come in API languages. And you know, how do we make sure that that information is still accessible for them, right? Um, either writing it in their native language with them, or are we recording an audio so that they can just listen to it and be reminded of these are the skills that you can use to ground yourself during a crisis. Um, do we help them program in numbers to crisis um, hotlines, for example, if, and then showing them how to access it if it's that they're not able to, to read or navigate. Um, and so we see that as a potential obstacle. Um, Sometimes it's the lack of follow through that can make it difficult, where no matter how many times we may tell them to call 911, it may not happen, right? And that piece is, requires so much work to really help make sure that they are able to, to follow through at some point. 
Um, and how do we set up these reminders and how do we address those barriers? Um, even the access line, for example, I mean, many um, hotlines, for example, may allow an alternate option for languages, but for API languages, because they may not meet that threshold to have a full-on translation system or an alternate pathway to get that support. Um, you know, how do we help make sure that the families know how to how, know how to um, utilize it? Um, and so the safety planning, sometimes it's almost the practice of calling these supports and knowing what numbers to push to get to the right translation line. So with this, um, I do want to pose the question for everyone if they've had any you know, challenges or successes in um, safety planning with API communities, given the different obstacles and challenges um, we've discussed. But I, I do want to reference something that um, someone had shared earlier about part of that safety piece and getting individuals to safety that can be traumatizing as well. So when we think about some of the options that come from safety planning, of course, we want to make sure that the individual stays at home and is, we want to minimize the impact and the traumas of um, potentially being involuntarily hospitalized or being removed from the home. Um, but what do we do when that may not be an option for them to stay at home safely? So, you know, these, you know, images could be very scary for a lot of families. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of the news articles. Uh, we see hospitals symbolizing um, really negative things to some families. Um, certain hospitals in the communities may be a reminder of all of the death and, and suffering people have faced. Right? Um, even the transportation to get help. You know, the fact that some people, some individuals have shared with me they've actually decided not to call because they were scared of the expenses of being transported somewhere. And so when we think about navigating these emergency resources, how do we help families who may not have the trust in these systems to do so? Um, calling police, um, addressing the fears and um, reminding them that, you know, the advocacy piece. Uh, sometimes we could be there on the phone with them as they help call the police, right? Or we may be able to meet them at the hospital to help them through that process, right? Um, definitely seeing you know these avenues of where we could step in to be support um, to help guide and ensure that the families get the help they need, um, clients get to the safe place, and we, we are part of it in every, every step of the way. Um, they shared that, you know, after building rapport and gaining trust in the mental health system, um, you know, she's adapted um, the suicide severity reading scale 
to help measure the risk to help patients and parents understand when suicidal ideation is getting to the point where you know outpatient care isn't enough and they might need a higher level of care. So that's a good piece as well. Um, helping families identify at what point um, they need to call for support, right? And so redefining what a crisis is at times. Um, we've had one of my um, one of my experiences is with a client who may have expressed wanting to to end her life every day after every session I had with her, um, and that was challenging. You know, every day having to inform mom, you know, so and so share with me she does want to end her life, but how can we work together to help? you make sure that you know we can escalate to a higher level of care as needed or we can still keep her at home safely and so um, i think this resource disease the sharing is would be one one way to do so but also considering you know working with the family and part of the model to educate and alert them to what key signs they need to look out for before reaching out to get a crisis Again, their definition of a crisis may be very different from ours. Thank you for that. You know, with knowledge comes power, and you know, the psychoeducation goes a long way during a crisis. You know, empowering them and restoring that sense of control. Um, you know, crises can throw off you know, the entire family system. So, having a better understanding of next steps is key and also normalizing and validating experiences you know i feel like it's been so helpful when i've shared with my client you know you're this you're not the only one and um there's a whole host of others who share in your experience and your grief so so many systems are, are maybe new to our epi communities and families I mean, the involuntary hospitalization piece. What does that mean? And how long does that last? And what, what happens after? I mean, these are questions that we get a lot. And so how do we teach and explain these systems? Um, mandated reporting rules and laws. I mean, while we go over this in our consent process, you know, these things get forgotten along the way. And so when there is a crisis and we have to make a report, how do we work with the family to, you know, preserve that relationship and ensure that it's coming from a safe of help and support versus I'm just reporting you because of that case, right? And so I think about um, another case uh, with DCFS involvement where a report was made on the family without their notification. And that process turned into a huge traumatic um, experience when you know social workers and police went out to the home abruptly without any notification. And while that may be, um, while it may be sometimes helpful and for safety purposes, um, staff may not kind of share with families that they're making the report. You know, I think having them be aware and teaching and guiding them through what that system is and what it means is, is key and helpful. 
Um, we've had success making the calls with the family members as well. So they're fully aware of what's being shared so that you can continue to maintain that relationship and that rapport. Um, you know, my closest families, my heart sunk when they shared with me something that I knew I'd have to report, but you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, right? But as a mandated reporter having to. And so how do we mitigate the impact of that? Right. Even things like patients' rights, um, the laws and cultures in the United States, um, that education is going to be valuable as they see the differences and how they might, for example, um, do punishment in their home countries versus here. Right. And when there's so many systems involved in a crisis, um, DCFS, for example, or the legal system, or even the schools, um, that can get overwhelming. Um, and so, you know, education on who's who and what responsibilities and reviewing that goes a long way as well. Um, and if, you know, depending on the level of service you provide, being the point person, um, if you're at a higher level of care to help really navigate and guide the family um, in reviewing these linkages, these supports, and organizing all of it, because, you know, it, it can get a lot once you have multiple systems um, and responders coming in during a crisis. And with that, you know, he asked, um, what were some of the topics in which you provided psychoed to mom in regards to the client that shared she wanted to harm herself at the end of each session? Some of the things you suggested to look out for engaging SI risk. Um, great question. I think with this one, there were some characterological features. Um, so it's difficult to generalize um, to all clients, but you know, parents, you know, know much more than we do. And so we've discussed and reviewed the history, right? of all the times the clients had shared this and how she presented, um, how did she share it, the tone of voice, her affect, things of that sort. And other times where she shared this information that did lead to a hospitalization or a suicide attempt, for example, what was the difference in how she was presenting at that time, right? Um, you know, how do we get support from the schools, right? As another avenue, um, another, observer of what's going on. You know, any differences in behaviors at school play a huge difference, right? Um, you know, mobilizing other family members and supports. Um, and just, you know, the collaboration between the provider and mom. Um, I mean, I think it's been helpful when I've shared with mom, you know, differences I've noticed and that allowed mom to really um, change how she approached the client or vice versa. When mom notified me ahead of time, you know, she's had a really bad day. How, you know, so that would give me that piece to work with as well um, to help, you know, address it or um, process that and then see where she's really at. At times, you know, the, the risk, you know, it's so important um, to, you know, be mindful of the full picture as you're assessing and determining these factors.
challenging client, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and in the midst of every, uh, every crisis lies a great opportunity. One of my supervisors has always shared that, uh, you know, crises sometimes can be a blessing. It can be a good thing. Um, and these events, while unfortunate and while we would hope to prevent it, sometimes they're the key factors that move families into treatment or to move them along with treatment. Um, and to help get them connected to more supports. So um, viewing crises in this manner helps, I think for me personally as a provider, instead of it being you know, a completely negative thing, is actually kind of a silver lining at times. With that, um, I share a couple community resources um, and services and just how important it can be, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, statistics that indicate how underutilized the EPI families, um, how much, how underutilized mental health services are um, with the EPI community. And again, we see that it's usually a crisis that will prompt the engagement into mental health services. And with um, symptoms having been more severe before entering um, you know, the mental health system, you know, the sooner the better, you know, it breaks my heart sometimes to think about some of the families who, if they had reached out earlier, if, or if someone was able to in intervene earlier, the, the prognosis of the client could have turned out differently, but, you know, also just, you know, meeting clients where they're at, um, you know, Notice the increase in the number of calls from parents of adult children um, who are experiencing severe mental illness. Parents are at a loss of how to help their adult children and adult children are unwilling to seek services. Um, systems may say there's nothing to be done if the, the individual is unwilling. And I, I hear you on that and I, I get that response many times as well. Um, with the cultural factors, parents continue to endure, right? They continue to provide care day in and day out and try to keep um, the children at home, but they suffer watching the children deteriorate. And I, I see this time and time again. Um, and how do we help these families? It comes back to that family practice model, right? Um, share the NAMI family support group, um, having that um support with those who have experienced it is a great one but for some communities again it's it's difficult to get them to engage and share the experience due to that stigma and shame um, so how do we help these families um, definitely guiding them through how do you handle a crisis i mean i think that's a, a big first step right to make sure there's the safeties there um, and then the coping, right, and the acceptance of their children. I think that that's a difficult piece to know that this could be a lifelong process, right? So how do you build in the social supports, the network of people who can help um, take over some of that care? I'm not sure if I answered your question, but we can definitely come back to that at the end. But I think increasing the supports, 
um, within the family system, that education of what to do and how to navigate through systems um, and you know, guiding them through how to, to access help when that time comes and that opportunity, that crisis appears so that the children then are able to, to seek services, okay? And so, you know, the opposite situation is when, you know, the, the parents may not want their children in services. Um, you know, we've seen in, um, in school settings, for example, um, when referrals have been made due to children having SI, Parents deny, you know, decline of providing consent to get services and treatment and to have follow-up support, right? And so um, the importance of linkages, maybe if it's not at the school system, we see a lot of shame and embarrassment and even the, the client themselves not wanting the school to know that they're struggling or having counseling and therapy. So just being mindful of all those components as well. So a stabilization after um, being very directive and problem, problem solving, um, having the patience, because you may walk them through it one time, two times, three times, 10 times, and they may not follow through or completely um, get all of the different pieces, but being patient to ensure that access and providing that hands-on support Right. You just provide a phone number or a brochure. More than likely, we've seen that families may not follow through with that. Um, that hands-on support, like calling with the family is a big one. For one of our clients, um, mom did not speak English at all, um, barely knew her way around the, the, the city. Um, we actually, you know, traveled with mom to the local urgent care and guided her through signing in her, 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 her child, walking them through the paperwork and then helping navigate and advocate throughout that process. So after that, mom knew where to go. There was a crisis. She knew what to say there. Um, she was able to request for a translator because we showed her how and she knew what to expect. And so that made a huge difference in how she was able to ask for help afterwards. So with that, um, that having providers that have the, the knowledge and expertise, as well as providers who may identify with the cultures, um, goes a long way. And so um, with LA County, we have a series of uh, API providers who have come together to really make sure we highlight and provide these services um, with language capacity. So, a few here are listed, and um, these are the providers who, uh, you know, collaborate to make sure that um, those with intensive needs under the full service partnership um, get that support. Um, and so that expertise goes a long way, and you know, may build engagement with the trust and understanding that, oh, like these providers look like me, or they speak my language. Um, the, it helps with getting that access to care. Um, even integrated care, um, care that's really focused on the cultural background as well. Uh, there's a series of them in LA County and I wanna highlight the Integrated Network of Cambodians at PACS who've done amazing work, you know, respecting and acknowledging the need for holistic care, right? Um, coordination with medical providers, you know, spiritual, 
supports, even things like acupuncture and non-traditional healing methods, it all goes a long way in helping maintain that engagement in aftercare after a crisis. With that, I'd like to share a couple resources. Um, there's a service locator log of the link there that will actually translate um, the, the search results for mental health care in different API languages and more. So you can access that there. But I'd also like to share the API recovery booklet. This is the English version, but what I appreciate about this is that they have one in multiple API um, languages. You know, there's a lot of psychoeducation that we've talked about that's important. Um, a lot of warning signs and things to look out for in terms to, to determine when a level, when a, something is at a crisis level and they need to get support. As you go through, um, there's a series of, you know, suggestions on how to get help and where to get help, as well as a directory of resources and agencies towards the end of the brochure. Um, so you can kind of see highlighting work of um, PACS, for example, or CAA, the language capacities and uh, you know different specialties, some of it for substance use um, challenges as well. Um, so the link is there um, and to locate these, I believe the links for each um, language brochure is going to be on the learning platform, but you can access it through this link. Um, so there's a lot of really cool resources here. Um, but there's one in Chinese, Khmer, Korean, Tagalog, and Vietnamese. Um, so all of this is translated. And there's a series of PSAs that you could use as part of your psychoeducation to help normalize mental health care. The API recovery toolbook, um, and that is going to be what you just saw. Um, but there's also you know, a series of translated guides. And I wanna shout out some of their staff at PACS who have helped with this process, right? Having the um, resources that could be um, seen. And so a host of other languages. So uh, there's a guide here that will um, link you to ones in different languages as well as other resources that will help. Um, like suicide prevention, um, mental health terms, um, videos to help. And so these links will be available uh, to you as well. Um, LA County has a series of, you know, API mental health clinics. Um, you know, to be mindful of time, I did want to note you know, in the Chinese um, script, you could see the word for crisis incorporates danger and opportunity. Um, again, the opportunity and um, that we've talked about to get people connected, but that sense of the danger that comes with it for the family, but also for all of us as providers, um, the physical dangers, um, the safety concerns, right? But also emotionally, how, much secondary trauma we may get working in these systems um, and um, the, the hardships that we, you know, we take on and the, the again, observing all this trauma. So 
the last few weeks have actually been pretty hectic on her and I don't know what it is, but we've had to deal with quite a few traumas. And there was a particularly tough one um, that I dealt with last week that kind of really shook me. And so, you know, for me, it, I was doing this puzzle it took me two hours and it just was something I could do um, to help with the self-care and coping, right? Um, and I also want to share the renewal spaces as another resource to help um, API providers and even non-API providers um, to process and debrief um, some of these um, crisis interventions, anti-Asian hate crimes and impacts it has on um, uh, your clients and your work. And so I'll share this link, but I think this is a valuable resource to help debrief and um, you know, process some of this work. Because again, it's not easy work. So I wanna close off with saying a mental health crisis deserves a mental health response. Um, and that's, that's, that's it, like you're it. You're the mental health response. Um, like again, the cultural humility piece, right? Um, even if you make a mistake, that's okay. Um, Will you learn and grow from it? And, you know, the fact that you're caring, um, you're compassionate, you're patient, um, that goes a long way, even despite all of these obstacles. Um, and so I wanna, you know, highlight all the work that you do and just the fact that you're here willing to learn and um, share some of the experiences and resources. Um, so wonderful. Uh, so wonderful to have all of you here and knowing that there's many mental health providers out there who care. Um, it speaks a lot to 